My brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. And with A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord. On leaving the synagogue, Jesus entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever. They immediately told him about her. He approached, grasped her hand, and helped her up. Then the fever left her, and she waited on them. When it was evening after sunset, they brought to him all who were ill or possessed by demons. The whole town was gathered at the door. He cured many who were sick with various diseases, and he drove out many demons, not permitting them to speak, because they knew him. Rising very early before dawn, he left and went off to a deserted place where he prayed. Simon and those who were with him pursued him, and on finding him said, Everyone is looking for you. He told them, Let us go unto the nearby villages, that I may preach there also. For this purpose have I come. So he went into their synagogues, preaching and driving out demons throughout the whole of Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Not too long ago, I ran into a friend from high school that I haven't seen probably since graduation. We've kept up with each other's lives through Facebook, so he knew that I was a priest. This often means that friends I haven't seen for a long time feel more confident, more unfiltered, and can be incredibly frank about their thoughts about religion without any real provocation on my part. So the conversation seriously went from, hey, Joe, wow, it's so good to see you. How long has it been? Where are you up to? To him asking me pretty quickly, hey, so what do you think about Joel Osteen? Talk about conversation starters that most people rarely encounter. Joel Osteen, for those of you who don't know, is this immensely popular uh, pastor of a non-denominational church in Texas. In fact, his his church in Texas is a former arena, and they get something like over 20,000 people in person every weekend. Osteen's had a a bunch of best-selling books and His services and his sermons are heard on satellite radio on his own channel, and he's on numerous television stations every weekend, reaching millions around the globe, including my childhood friend, Joe, who is a a big fan and listens to him every week. So I explained that I've, I've listened to Joel Osteen a bunch of times over the years. He's incredibly charismatic. He's very optimistic. He's a very gifted communicator. I mean, he preaches for a solid half hour without any notes in front of him. So that's self-impressive to those of us who have to have their thoughts written out in front of them all the time. And from what I've heard and seen on his social media sharings, his preaching is categorized as the prosperity gospel, meaning that he believes that God always wills financial blessing and physical well-being for his children. And if we're faithful to him, those blessings will manifest in our lives. So on New Year's Eve, this friend of mine, Joe, shared one of Osteen's tweets summarizing this theme of the prosperity gospel. And it went, let this sink down into your spirit. Your due season is here. Promotion is coming. 
increase is coming, good breaks are coming. In this due season, your cup is going to overflow. It's easy to see why Osteen is immensely popular. He's tapping into those universal desires, those human wants for health and wealth. And it's true. That was God's intention. His desire is for our fulfillment and our happiness. But things have gone awry since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve decided at Satan's insinuation that what God had prepared for them wasn't enough. And even worse, that that God couldn't be trusted. That if they wanted, they could become gods themselves if they listened to Satan. And as a result, they rebelled against God and, and sin entered into human existence. And unfortunately, that reality, that sin has affected and continues to afflict humanity ever since. So while we might want to hear that promotion is coming, increase is coming, good breaks are coming, for many of us, those words from the first reading from the book of Job in the Old Testament seem a whole lot more relatable. Right out of the gate, Job's first words were, is not man's life on earth a drudgery? That probably caught a lot of people's ears who don't necessarily expect to hear such negative but real talk at Mass. The book of Job is one of the most challenging scriptures for people. The unanswered problem of suffering, of evil. Why do bad things happen to good people? Sometimes terrible things to really good people, is raised in breathtaking detail. Job himself has suddenly experienced catastrophic losses of wealth, health, family, and friends. And some of his so-called friends, who are still alive, are trying to debate with him and convince Job that he must have done something to spark God's wrath, that all of his woes have to be the result of some unknown sin or something that he's just not admitting. And Job rejects that premise. He knows his conscience is clear deep in his heart, but he sure sounds pretty beat up tonight. As he continued, I've been assigned months of misery. Troubled nights have been allotted to me. I shall not see happiness again. Job's story puzzles readers for a whole bunch of reasons, including how Spoiler alert, Job will never curse God for what's happened. He remains faithful despite his profound misery. And even when he gets the opportunity to speak directly to God, God's answers to his questions are far from answers. And Job continues to praise and bless God. It's so perplexing and challenging for those who are looking for for clarity, who want logic, want a satisfactory answer to that question of suffering and evil. Why remain faithful to God when painful, inexplicable, unreasonable things happen? Then we can get to this gospel. We hear about Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And yes, Simon, Simon Peter was a married guy. That's a topic for another day. And she's suffering from a fever, In the ancient world, that was a serious thing. More often than not, that meant that someone was dying. Jesus instantly heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And we read in the very next paragraph, he cures many townspeople, as the gospel describes it, who were sick from all kinds of various diseases. And he continues performing exorcisms, 
casting out demons. Jesus is able to heal their pain in the very moment, instantly, miraculously. But it always strikes me that those physical cures are not forever. The people who experience those miracles tell all their family and friends, and quickly there's a whole crowd waiting, waiting around at the door, and they want him to stay. They want him to remain on call just in case. But Jesus leaves town. And at some point, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, everyone else who celebrated that day, who had experienced these tremendous miracles, would again be vulnerable to suffering. They would endure illnesses. They would experience death. So what was the point? That's also a fate, though, that Jesus himself will not avoid. The same one who cast out demons who miraculously restored healing and even brought people back from the dead, would experience temptations by Satan and all kinds of oppression and attacks from the demons. He would suffer first as he witnessed other people's pain. Throughout the Gospels, we hear how his heart is moved with compassion, even to weeping when he sees someone experiencing loss and pain and misery. But ultimately, he would choose to experience every aspect of human suffering, unimaginable pain in mind, body, spirit, and heart, as well as physical death itself on the cross. Which is where that divide comes between those who follow the prosperity gospel and our perspective as Catholic Christians. When we ask, does our pain have a purpose? It's one of the toughest questions people of faith are left to struggle with. Because when we look at the cross, we can romanticize it. We could see it as beautiful, which it is for us, the beneficiaries of such a supreme act of love. But when we're on the cross, when we're in the midst of that, that crucifixion, when we're suffering ourselves, it's not that pretty. One of the most moving things to me in the entire time that Pope Francis has been our Holy Father was some years ago when he was visiting the Philippines, visiting hundreds of thousands of people who were touched by the devastation of the typhoons. And at that visit, this 12-year-old this asked the Pope, why so much suffering? And he was kind of speechless. He just humbly admitted in tears he didn't have an answer for her or for any of us. But on another occasion, he explained a little bit more thoroughly. And he said, faith is not a light which scatters all of our darkness, but a lamp which guides our steps in the night and suffices for the journey, which is something incredibly insightful and beautiful because too often we look to Jesus just to be this light to cast out everything that's holding us back from health and promotion and our due seasons, which to be sure does happen, but not always as the Holy Father continued with the point that's really been of great comfort to me in my own times of trial. He said, to those who suffer, God does not provide arguments which explain everything. Rather, his response is that of an accompanying presence, a history of goodness, which touches every story of suffering and opens up a ray of light. Sure, every one of us, to some extent, desires health and wealth. And God desires our happiness and fulfillment of life. 
And we just imagine that if he gave us the health and wealth, that, that we'd all be in agreement, and things would all line up and everything would be fine. But Jesus has come to lift our hearts and minds to see beyond our limited wants and needs and desires. To recognize that in our far from perfect world, where still, sin still affects and afflicts us on personal and global levels, most of us might not be experiencing those things. But that doesn't mean he's not blessing us. Nor does it mean we're doing something wrong that we're being punished for. For people of faith, we're called to recognize that the things that we struggle with in this life aren't supposed to be the end. Often, they're preparing us for our work on earth and ultimately our home in heaven. That's not an easy thing to accept. We prefer the health and wealth now. And with those realities out of our, out of our reach, it's, it's hard to imagine what eternal life will look like without any pain or suffering. That's when we'll be completely healed, not just momentarily, but forever. But for now, Jesus calls us, sometimes through pain, to follow him wholeheartedly. Because in the end, for Job and for St. Peter's mother-in-law and for everyone who experienced a miracle cure, the deeper, more important miracle wasn't those instances where their pain was taken away in the dramatic moment that just blew everyone's mind. The more important thing was the strengthening of their faith, their confidence that came from knowing that God's mercy was there amid their pain. And being called to follow him wouldn't simply suffer so that we would commiserate with him. Instead, the one who would rise from the dead would overcome all that suffering and pain and experience a glorious new life in the resurrection. So Jesus calls us to follow him. Follow him when we mourn. Follow him when we weep. Follow him when we feel alone and abandoned. Follow him when we're in agony. Follow him when we realize that our attempts to alleviate pain fall short. Follow him knowing that he hasn't ceased reaching out to us. And even more importantly, he hasn't abandoned us. He's the all-powerful, omnipresent God who sees me. He knows every minute detail of our pain. He sustains us in our weaknesses. And he promises us that if we continue to follow him, he will do far more than merely blessing us individually with prosperity, promotion, or short-term gains here and now. Instead, we will be able to conquer all suffering and death, experiencing eternal life with him and the perfect love and joy of heaven.